So you could take your Bibles out. You could turn to Genesis chapter 25, officially the halfway mark in Genesis as we go through. Um, if you need a Bible, put up your hand, keep it up so you are seen and somebody will get one into your hands, I promise. <laughs> yeah, there's the, I knew somebody would jump up. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> Elliot, you could get your own Bible. <laughs> He's an usher in training anyway. Anybody, keep your hand up so you can see. Genesis chapter 25, um, continuing this study, coming to this last chapter in Abraham's life, the final days that we will look at here of Abraham, and it has been quite a journey. We've been going through these, some 12 plus chapters of Abraham's life, uh, and a great study that's been, a great experience that has been to see the life of Abraham, his great faith that was demonstrated through various circumstances, and we've also been able to learn from Abraham's mistakes at the same time, because he has made those as anyone has, right? Anyone who is a, called a man or a woman of faith, they make mistakes still. Only Christ is perfect. And so we look at Abraham's life, his great faith, we look at even his mistakes, and we learn from the life of Abraham. Today, we'll take a look at Abraham finishing his race well. And then even looking at the descendants of Abraham. But in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 25, it says that Abraham again took a wife. And her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, no, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan, Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ether, Hanok, Abida, Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, we come to these lists in the Bible sometimes of names of which we can very rarely pronounce. It's not our native language, so it is complicated sometimes, but we have these lists of names. Abraham, clearly, he, he got married again after Sarah died. Now this is, he already got married, he got married to Sarah, he got married to Hagar, and now he, after Sarah died, took this wife for himself of Keturah. Uh, and, and an interesting note here, Keturah has been likened to uh, a picture of Israel and that God has not yet finished with Israel and intends to restore her to a place of fruitfulness and blessing in the millennial reign. There's plans still in store for Israel, and, and, and Israel, like Keturah, will become a channel of blessing, as there are more descendants that clearly come through Keturah, from Abraham. Uh, and then it would also make sense, it's also, it's been likened to this, that the sons of Keturah 
who are named here in Scripture in the inspired Word of God. And we have to remember that. The names are there for a reason. Perhaps giving us a picture of this representation of the Gentile nations. So we see that these are the sons of Keturah and Abraham in verse 5. Gave, gave all that he had to Isaac. Verse six, but Abraham gave gifts to the son of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. <coughs> Abraham, two things took place here. He gave everything he had to Isaac, and he sent everybody else away. Uh, Isaac we know Isaac is the son of promise. He is the chosen son that God had promised him long before. And we know then, of course, Abraham took matters into his own hands at times, forgetting or forsaking the promise of God to give him this chosen son, this blessed child. Uh, and then, of course, he took Hagar as a wife. He had Ishmael. That's not the child that God had had promised him, and then Isaac comes along later. Isaac, being the chosen son, is the son of the covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was a one-sided covenant, not a two-sided covenant like most covenants would be. <coughs> and this covenant, and it's again giving a picture of the Jews as a chosen people and the sons of Keturah as the Gentile nation. So we have Isaac is the picture of the Jews, the chosen people. Keturah's sons, the Gentile nations. Abraham, what he's doing here, thank you, Todd. <clears throat> I should have thought ahead. <clears throat> what Abraham is doing is ensuring the succession of the covenant and the safety of Isaac. And he did that by giving all that he had to Isaac, Isaac being now the heir, the only heir. There is no other heir to what Abraham is passing on. The inheritance is all Isaac's. <coughs> the inheritance is not gonna be split up amongst all these other children that are listed here and then grandchildren that are listed here. It's all Isaac's. And that's what verse five brings a focus into. Here's all these descendants, further descendants of Abraham, but Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Again, we see a type of Christ here. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, guys. So fitting that I get this tickle in my throat as soon as I come up here. I have one in my pocket. <coughs> I've been trying to delay. <coughs> so it's not in there while I'm trying to speak, but it's probably better than coughing every 30 seconds. <coughs> Abraham, though, is... Ensuring this covenant will carry on. And he's ensuring the safety of Isaac. And he did that by giving what he had to Isaac, making Isaac the only heir, 
this picture of Christ as Jesus is the heir of all things. And then Abraham also, he sent everybody to the east. He sent everybody away from Isaac. A guarantee that no one could contest Isaac's claim in the future. So he protects Isaac here and now. He, he makes sure, ensures that the covenant will carry on and he protects that covenant in the future as well. Abraham protecting the future of the covenant. Likewise, the father ensured the future of the covenant through Jesus Christ. So Abraham then, verse uh, seven, we continue. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Bir Lahai Roy. So the sum of his years, 175 years. This is the sum. And when we think of that, the sum of something, the, the total, the grand total. When you add it all up, this is the sum. And it wasn't just about a number when it comes to Abraham's life. 175 years is a long time. Not very long compared to some of the older historical people in the Bible, right? Like Noah or Methuselah or Seth. But no doubt it's a long time. And what we see is this, this is the sum. This is the grand total of this great man of faith. The father of faith. One of the most important and influential figures in all of the faith mentioned in the New Testament many times. Second only to Moses, he's mentioned in the New Testament as a father of faith, foundational in all of the Hebrew people and all of religious beliefs that would carry on for generations. But most importantly, faith. There was, yes, ritual. There were things that would take place, but it was about his faith. And that is the sum. 175 years, it's a number. But the sum of his life was faith. And we can look at, you know, throughout, you see the mistakes he made, and yes, we said we can learn from those mistakes, but he's mentioned in that Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith, looking back at Abraham as this father of the faith. It says then that he, he died in, in a good old age. Now, with, this is a term that we still even would throw around. You know, he died of a good old age. Way to go. That's great. I mean, and, and it, it is a great thing. It's, the Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord are the death, death of his saints. 
To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is a good thing. And now it says that he died of a good old age. And that translates to specifically saying he died full. So what we see is that what this is saying in his good old age is that Abraham lived his life to the fullest. Now we've heard that thrown around easily as well. And and people would say that of anybody in the world, oh, they lived life to the fullest. What does that really mean? They really lived, they enjoyed life, they tried new things, they had exciting things go on, they, they, they really succeeded in life, and they, they left their mark on the world. But on what terms? When it comes to Abraham, perhaps, as I said before, with this 175 years, the sum of his life being faith, perhaps he left one of the greatest marks on all the world for all of history. We know that Jesus left the greatest mark, but Abraham, what a mark he left because he lived life to its absolute fullest. And what that meant, it was all a story of faith. A good old age is a quote. I couldn't find who it was by, but it's a quote. It's a good quote. A good old age begins with good youth and good manhood. That was Abraham. He, he lived his life to the fullest of honoring God. If you, you remember, as we studied, God took him and brought him out of this life of pagan worship and rescued him, brought him to the other side because he had a great plan in store, because he was going to bring the lineage of promise. And now, further, he continues in living his life to the fullest. And that fullest is all about his faith. What is our measure of fullest life? What is the measure of of what we would say, man, I'm really living life to its fullest? And are are we working hard? That's good. Are we kind to people? Sure, that's all good. Are we succeeding? Yeah, okay, fine but are we walking by faith? Because that's when you really live is when you walk by faith and not by sight. That's what living is. Living is about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It is about our faith. It's not about what we do to leave some mark on this world It's about honoring God. It's about walking by faith. That will leave the greatest impact. So God then, we see that Abraham dies. He breathed his last. He died in a good old age, a man full of years, and was gathered to his people. And then, of course, his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, they take him and they bury him in the the tomb that he purchased this tomb, if you remember as we studied going back a few chapters, Abraham purchased this tomb for his wife Sarah to be buried in. He purchased this tomb of the land that was promised to him. It was his own rightful land, but he came and he purchased the tomb from that land. And now 
he himself is buried in that same tomb along with his wife, Sarah. Then it says that God blessed Isaac. God follows through with the promise that he made, with the covenant that he made. It, remember, was a one-sided covenant. God made the covenant. Clearly, Abraham can't fulfill the covenant. He's in a tomb. But God fulfills the covenant. God continues now with Isaac. And he's gonna continue further. We're gonna get into with Jacob. And then it continues. It keeps going until Jesus. That is the lineage that we are following here. And there's a focus that is brought to that lineage even in this chapter specifically, as we're gonna get onto in a moment. But God follows through with the promise after Abraham is gone. God, remember this, God has set a plan for redemption before the foundation of the world. This is not just an Abraham story. It's a redemption story throughout all of history, from the very beginning until even today, and then beyond us forever, it's a redemption story that God ordained before the foundation of the world. He planned it out. He gave his purpose, and we've been studying through that in Ephesians on Sunday mornings. But we look at God blessing Isaac is him following through and fulfilling the covenant. Because man in their humanity, everybody dies. Therefore, we cannot fulfill the covenant for all of history, for all of eternity. But God can. He carries it on. It's not an Abraham story. It's a redemption story. Verse 12 then. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Abraham's son, who Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, before bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, <laughs> Adbeel, Mib, Mibsam, Mibsam, Mib, Misham, no, I'm sorry, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael. And these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So we have this chunk of verses here, a brief story of Ishmael, a brief lineage of Ishmael. It's, it's kind of just dropped in here. And then we're going to get into Isaac, which is the next two and a half chapters Right, And so there's quite a difference. You think, that's not fair. Why not? You know, Ishmael just gets a few verses here. Uh, but it's, in, you know, here's the thing. There's this brief story, and it's included in the redemption story, is sometimes the story of our past, our history. The things that we have to carry with us. Ishmael is part of Abraham's redemption story. 
Ishmael was the son that Abraham took matters into his own hands to try to recreate the promise of God or try to influence God's hand or influence the promise, the, the covenant. And sometimes when we come to that place in, in this redemption story, there's still the Ishmael. There's still this this baggage or this situation, there's circumstance that needs to be dealt with. And Ishmael was no doubt Abraham's son. And so it's, it's noting that he is Abraham's son. And the Bible tells us also that Ishmael was a rebellious man. He mostly rejected the ways of Abraham. He was always at, as we studied before, enmity with the world. In this place of being rejected by the world always in, in this, at odds with the world. And Moses, in his writing here, continues to bring focus back to the lineage of promise, the lineage of Christ. And that's really what we're, gonna, we're seeing here with all the focus that's going to be given to Isaac. We look at Ishmael, and it's put in here because Ishmael was Abraham's son. And Abraham treated him as such. But he also was a rebellious man. And so there's a contrast that we see. And based on this contrast, we're going to look then, hey, let's look at the promise. Let's not get caught up in so much of what the, the past is or the, the mistakes that we may have made. And, and, and we can look at them for what they are, but then move forward into the promise that God has set before us. And so... We continue then, following the lead of Moses in his writing, with the life of Isaac. In verse 19, <clears throat> this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. So we see Isaac. The beginning of this was actually our study last week in chapter 24, where we see Isaac and a bride for Isaac, Rebecca. It's the first chick flick in all of history. If you weren't here last week, go back and read it. There's a whole like love story. There's this beautiful scene. She's coming with the camels, riding on the camel, and, and the sun is setting, and it's, I mean, Really, get the whole picture. Play some emotional music in the background. You'll be like, wow, this is amazing. See, God has such a beautiful imagination. First chick flick in the history of the world here. But that's the story. That's the picture. But, you know, we're seeing this is, that's the beginning of Isaac's chapter. This is the beginning of what we begin, we study in the life of Isaac. And his, his beautiful arranged marriage his beautiful love story. But more than that, it's a beautiful picture. And we studied that last week, a picture of redemption, a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, that the son has redeemed the bride, the church. And so that's just a, a brief rewind there of, of the 67 verses of chapter 24, if you weren't with us last week. But then we see that the lineage of promise here, verse 21, 
Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The lineage of promise had some trouble bearing children. Now, there's things that we see in Scripture sometimes and we think, yeah, that's not fair. Right? And we've talked a little bit about that recently, even in Ephesians. We're going to get a little bit further into that today, of what we think is fair. How do we know what fair is? We, have, we only think of fairness on our, our human standards, or we think of justice on our human standards. But God is just. God has ordained redemption before the foundation of the world. And so here we see, we might think, well, this isn't fair. This is the lineage of promise. And, and how is it fair? How is it even fair that Ishmael didn't get the attention that Isaac got? Or how is it fair that even further we're going to get into that Jacob was chosen over Esau? How is it fair that Rebekah was barren? God will be glorified. And we think of fairness on our terms, but God is going to be glorified. And when these things happen, be it someone being barren, be it just suffering of any sort, a loss of a loved one, going through hard times and hard circumstances. God will be glorified. And when these things happen, it's an opportunity. He is working together for our good. We might think, well, that's not good. But he's working together for your good, for you to grow in your knowledge and your understanding, your relationship with Jesus, for you to, to understand more of his ways, his heart, his character, for you to press into trust and hope, to press into prayer and faith. Now this lineage of promise having trouble bearing children was not on Isaac, was it? What we see is that it was the fact that Rebecca was barren. We're like, oh, we could blame the women again, right? Listen. We have to remember, we have to recognize that Rebecca was redeemed, rescued out of a life of paganism. And there's even a picture here of the sinful ways that we bring along. And sometimes they make fruitfulness very difficult. But yet, God is faithful. God will be glorified. And what does it take? We see this beautiful picture once again. A husband interceding for his bride. A picture of Christ who intercedes for his bride, the church. And what a great example for husbands to be in prayer for your wives. It will bring forth fruit. We might think, well, my wife's not barren. I'm good. We're talking about fruitfulness in life. We're talking about fruit that God desires to bring forth out of a promise that sometimes we can get mixed up in other things that could 
affect the promise of God. And remembering that the enemy, the devil, is trying to distort the promise of God and completely destroy the promise of God. All throughout this book so far that we've been studying of Genesis, the enemy is trying to destroy the lineage of promise. But God redeems. And even in this lineage of promise, here comes Rebecca out of this paganism, out of this pagan life, but now redeemed and brought into this life of promise. And in that, there's some struggles, yes, but God is faithful. God redeems and restores, and God will be glorified. And here's what was necessary. It was prayer, and it was patience. Pray. Pray, guys, it brings forth fruit. When you feel like maybe just talking about life, maybe you feel like your life is dry, it is barren. There's no fruit. Pray. Like Isaac, plead. He pleaded with God for his wife. He interceded as Christ intercedes for us. So with prayer and patience, Rebecca conceived. A true miracle that was an answer to prayer. The hand of God, there's no question about it. There's no other way to explain it. But, verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. There's a struggle in the womb, and this even perhaps representing this battle within. Now again, remembering the enemy is doing everything possible to try to destroy the lineage of promise. So now there's two in the womb. She doesn't know that yet. But there's this battle within. There's this fear even. What's going on? If everything's fine, then why am I experiencing? She is experiencing this battle from within her. There's no doubt spiritual warfare connected to that. But representing a battle within beyond just the womb, there's this She's in this place of walking in newness of life, attempting to bear fruit. And so, yes, there is a battle. Yes, there is spiritual warfare in the midst of pursuing the fruit that God has promised. So what does she do? This is beautiful. She sought the Lord. Why? Because her husband set that glorious example for her. She would not have known to seek the Lord. Her upbringing, her life was not a life of seeking the Lord, but because her husband who pleaded for her with the Lord and set this example of prayer, now she goes right into that same place, into the presence of the Lord. She sought the Lord. So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, verse 23, 
Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your, your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is, this is quite an impressive uh, situation here. She is pleading, she goes to inquire of the Lord. She's saying, if everything's okay, then why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? Let me go talk to God about it. Let me inquire of the Lord. Let me seek him and find out the answer. And the answer is, two nations are in your womb. Imagine, ladies, you get the news. You're pregnant. Yes, praise the Lord, what great news that is. Then the next thing you hear is not that you're having twins only, but two nations are in your womb. Now, of course, this is figurative in the way the Lord is speaking to her. Two nations are in your womb. These nations of Israel, of Edom, are represented in her womb. But this is a prophetic word from the Lord. She heard from the Lord because she sought the Lord. She was barren. Isaac sought the Lord. That brought fruit. Now she's confused. She is struggling within. There is an internal battle going on. And so she sought the Lord and the Lord answered. The Lord will answer. Now he may answer and say, there's two nations. There's a massive battle. There is a war within. And there's a picture of spiritual warfare, yes. And there's a picture of the, the warfare that will go on between the nations and between the brothers. And there's even belief that, historically, there's people who believe that Esau, in the womb, tried to kill Jacob. I believe... That's the tactic of the enemy, trying to eliminate the lineage of promise, the battle within, the internal struggle that we face of flesh against the spirit. But she sought the Lord personally and got this prophetic word. You're having twins. They will each be the father of nations, of Israel and of Edom, and the older will serve the younger. There's three different words of prophecy. One very practical here and now, you're having twins. This is long before any technology could tell you you're having twins. God knows. And God said, you're having twins. They're going to represent two nations. And the older will serve the younger. Three things that were pretty mind-blowing in a moment. This is like a mind-blowing trinity for her. What? But then verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. This is just drawing attention to the fact that God was right. Because that's who God is. He knows. It points us back to the plan that he set out for redemption. And the plan is being fulfilled for redemption to take place. Not just this story. It's not just an Abraham story. It's not just an Isaac and Rebecca story. It's not just a Jacob and Esau story. It's a redemption story from the beginning and forever. The older will serve the younger. Indeed now, 
the promise is fulfilled. The promise is fulfilled. The prophecy is fulfilled. It was all true. Because what God says is true. I've said it before. If God speaks and says something, in in the New Testament we've seen Jesus himself speak and when he speaks and says something will happen, we take that as an absolute. But do we? In our walk with him, when we hear him speak, when we read in his scripture and we think, oh no, no, that doesn't apply to me, it's okay, I'm just gonna put that away. I don't wanna be challenged in the scriptures right now to walk by faith. But when God speaks and he says something will happen, something will happen. We take it as an absolute. And so then the first, verse 25, the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. That's awesome. The first, Esau, he came out red and hairy, like a garment. That's that's hairy. I mean, we're, it's not just like, oh, well, like you, you have a baby, a newborn, and like, wow, they got, they're really got a lot, a good head of hair there, you know? No, this is, he came out red and hairy, red-headed, hairy Esau. This is a unique experience here. The name Esau means hairy. And that day, people would name their children based on the circumstance surrounding the birth. So Esau was named Esau. Harry Red. That's why. But now you also have Jacob. Verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Jacob means, the name means heel catcher. He was actually holding on to his brother's heel. But the word for heel catcher in the the culture is actually, he was being called a con man, trickster. These are the words that, that are associated with the heel catcher. What a prophetic word of who he would become. But then it comes around with his uncle many years later. But here we see the heel catcher. We see the hairy, red-headed Esau. The older shall serve the younger. Now they're seeing it physically before them, the older and the younger, knowing this word from the Lord that Rebekah had gotten. The older serving the younger is against what the world would think is fair. And again, talking about what is fair. That's what God does, though. Is it fair that any of us have the gift of eternal life? No. Is it fair that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? No. In every way, as we studied in the Gospel of John, in every way, Jesus was wrongfully accused wrongfully tried, illegally tried, wrongfully beaten, abused, with the crown of thorns in his head and hung on a cross, in every way it was wrong. Was it fair? 
But yet we're so caught up in fairness. The older serving the younger, Paul addresses that as well. And we study that in Ephesians chapter one and Paul addresses it as well in Romans chapter nine, specifically speaking of Jacob and Esau. He says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. What we're seeing here, and as we studied so much in the first chapter of Ephesians, God's choice is God's choice. And he doesn't choose based on Esau or Jacob's actions or performance, good or evil. It says before, even in the womb before, according to the purpose of God, with the plan of redemption that was before the foundation of the world, God chooses who God chooses according to his mercy, according to his compassion, according to his judgment and justice. His ways are not our ways. He knows what he's doing and he has proven it over and over and over again. Remember, Father, Son, and Spirit made a perfect plan for redemption before the foundation of the world and God is working it out through Isaac, through Jacob, to lead to Christ. Fairness, our version, is false. Justice, our version, doesn't exist. God is just. Charles Spurgeon said, a woman once said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. We see these brothers. And in the, in the terms as it says, is that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, it's not a specific hatred toward Esau because we know God loves the world. But he has chosen Jacob. He's given the preference to Jacob. For what reason exactly we don't know and we never will. But we trust that God is just. Verse 27. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we have here, as in most families, in most cases, 
These two boys were completely different from each other. I have two boys. I have two girls. Every one of them is different from each other. My two boys, they just constantly go at it. They are opposite from each other in so many ways. But they're best friends at the same time. And they love wrestling. And they love fighting. And they love being competitive and yelling at each other. No, oh, you did that wrong. Oh, I got the point, whatever. And they just, it's, it's great. There's good healthy competition. And then they go overboard. This is sibling rivalry to its fullest here. These completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Esau, he's the hairy guy, man's man, hunter in the field. Just, you get a picture of him just always being dirty and this like lumberjack type of guy. And then you have Jacob, who dwelt in the tent. He likes to just hang, hang out. A mild man, as it says. The idea is mild-mannered. The idea is uh, the word is complete, sound, or wholesome. He was not the guy who's going to go out in the field and get his hands all bloody by hunting and bringing home something, you know, to cook up for his dad. Here you go, dad. But the bottom line is they were complete opposites from each other. And we see that each parent had their favorite. So Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. Jacob did what Jacob does. Esau did what Esau does. Jacob cooked, Esau was in the field. He came in from the field, he was weary. They were both consistent to their nature. And Esau says, verse 30, please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Feed me. This, no doubt, is a picture of the flesh crying out, feed me. I am weary. When we are weary, maybe we're off our game a little bit. When we're weary, we're just crying out for something. Sometimes we may satisfy the flesh in those moments of being weary. Whether it's physically weary, whether it's emotionally weary, whether it's, it's spiritually, we're facing attack and we are weary. Mentally, we're weary sometimes and we make decisions in the flesh when we are weary to feed the flesh. And we say, like Esau, feed me. I am weary. I've been out working hard. I deserve this. We want what we want when we want it, like Esau. Verse 31, but Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Oh, there he is. There's the con man. There's the heel catcher, the sneaky Jacob. This is not just the idea of, oh, man, he was holding on to his heel. This is Jacob living out his, his life 
This is him living up to his name. As Esau lives up to his name, we we see they're totally different from each other. They're both living up to their names as they grow up as boys, becoming this, you know, Esau, this burly, hairy hunter, and Jacob, who likes to cook and take care of things around the tent, keeping things a little more neat and clean and more put together for himself. And now living up to this same thing, Living up to their names, we see Esau searching to be fed physically. We see Jacob looking for the opportunity, taking advantage of an opportunity. Sell me your birthright on this day. A birthright was, of course, intended for the oldest. There's an order. A birthright is about an order. The oldest would get a certain amount then the next would get a certain amount, and it would go down a little bit, each, each one. And so between these two brothers, he says, look, there's only two. And so if I can get the birthright, then I get the double portion. I get his and I get mine. And not only that, I get first place. I get the position. I get to lead the family when dad passes on. He's looking for this double portion. He's looking for this opportunity to, to live up to his name and be, become the head of the family. And think about what this includes. This is deciding who would inherit the covenant that God made with Abraham. The land, the nation, and the lineage of promise. This is all what is, on, is, is at stake here. Esau has no idea what's at stake. He's not concerned about what is at stake. His response in verse 32, he says, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Now perhaps Esau was being super dramatic and he's just really hungry. And like we say sometimes, I'm starving. Or my kids are so good, I'm starving. There's no food, I'm starving. Guys, relax. There's plenty of food. We're not starving. We're good. But this is what we, we we exaggerate sometimes in that way. This is beyond that. And he had been out in the field. Maybe he'd been working so hard. We know that he was weary. Maybe it is to the point that he actually thinks, if I don't get food in me, I'm gonna die. I need sustenance. But more realistically, what we see here happening is that he is lacking perspective and even forsaking a perspective of eternal things and spiritual things. Saying, what does it matter? If I'm gonna die anyway, then what is the birthright even worth? What is my inheritance even worth? But not thinking of the eternal. Again, pointing us to Ephesians chapter one, pointing us to this, the inheritance, the spiritual blessing, the inheritance that we, would, we get from God. It's all about the eternal. It's not about the physical, but Esau's like, it doesn't matter. Birthright makes no difference. I'm gonna die one day anyhow. And so Jacob takes advantage of this statement that he makes, swear to me. 
as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Scheming and taking advantage, here's Jacob stepping in and Esau willingly selling his birthright because he doesn't understand the inheritance. He doesn't understand what's in store. Are we so different? When we look at the spiritual inheritance that has been given to us, made available to us, do we forsake it? Do we say, what does it matter? Because we don't understand? We don't press into faith? We don't press into that relationship with Jesus? And so we're spiritually saying, what does it matter, my birthright? We have a great birthright through Christ. When we are born again, we have a birthright. That is to the spiritual inheritance of everlasting life. Heavenly places, as Ephesians says. And so then, in exchange for this inheritance, for this birthright, Jacob gave Esau some bread and stew. Seems like an even trade, right? Seems like a pretty common con man. He made out like a bandit. Jacob got the inheritance. He got the birthright. Esau got momentary satisfaction. Another picture of the flesh. Feed me. Okay. Just for a moment. Sin satisfies only for a moment. Forsaking our inheritance satisfies only for a moment. Here and now, it will not satisfy anything in eternity. So it says, Esau, verse 30, 30, 34, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils that he ate and drank, arose and went his way. That's it. He arose and went his way. He admitted, like, okay, that's great, thanks. He literally just admitted, like, I don't get it, man. Have my birthright. I'm hungry. And he fed himself. He got up and he walked out. Literally, as it closes with here, thus Esau despised his birthright. He forsook his inheritance. He despised his own inheritance, his own birthright that was rightfully his. And he said, meh, give me food. And after that momentary satisfaction, he said, Thanks a lot, see you later. He had no perspective. God was clearly right about his choice, wasn't he? You see, we can look throughout all of history and we can get caught up in, is this fair? Is this just? God chose Jacob over Esau? Well, again, we don't know what fairness or justice really is on our terms. But certainly, it was right. We can look back in hindsight and say, well, it worked out, didn't it? Because God knew it would work out. And so he gave the inheritance to Jacob. 
greater blame is placed on Esau because he forsook his birthright. He forsook his rightful inheritance. Reminding us, and I'll, I'll say it again, Ephesians chapter one, and here's some of the things, the parallel that we see, the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, redemption through the blood of Jesus. We see grace and peace. We see the eternal inheritance. It's all ours. Don't despise it like Esau did. That's the spiritual picture of Genesis chapter 25. And the takeaway for us, we have given to us as believers in Jesus Christ spiritual blessings. We have an eternal inheritance. Don't forsake it. Don't despise it. Don't feed the flesh for momentary satisfaction and get up and walk away and say, what difference does it make? I want the here and now. But nothing, guys, nothing in our lives is about the here and now. Our here and now decision is walk with Jesus. Like Abraham, walk by faith and let the fullest, let the fullness of our life be a legacy of faith. so that we would understand our inheritance. That as we walk with, by faith, that we are, are receiving then our inheritance in Christ, the eternal inheritance. Do not forsake it. It's there, it's a gift, it's available. Walk with Jesus. Let's pray.